Okay. And I don't obviously don't have handouts. Um, and so we're going to be at First Corinthians six and Song of Solomon seven, and we're probably kind of like flip back and forth. So you know, dude. If you got one of those built-in Bible bookmarks, this is when it's good to use that. So, um, Yeah, and thanks for coming out late on a Tuesday night. I kind of wondered who would actually show up. So, um, Okay, what I, what I want to do is take a look at simply what the Bible says about sex. And for the most part, stay away from... Taylor's here, we can start. Um, for the most part, kind of stay away from... I, my experience is this. Whenever you heard that like a pastor or a Christian group is going to talk about sex, it immediately was this kind of like, okay, uh, get your shoes tied and brace yourself because it's about to just... It's about to pound you. Kind of like fear-mongering, like, you know, how far is too far... And my, like, my sole agenda tonight, I mean, there'll be a little bit talking about how we abuse it, but really it's just to try to get you to behold the beauty of sex that the Bible says it does. Um, that almost to leave tonight making you say, okay, sex actually is better than I thought, uh, and I really love Jesus. Like, if you walk away tonight saying sex is better than I thought and more beautiful than I thought and I love Jesus, then it's... Mission accomplished. Um, so that's kind of uh, what we're going for. So let me uh, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you for I thank you for the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, it's amazing that you have given us a book uh, that celebrates um, real uh, passionate love for each other. It's amazing that it's a pointer uh, to uh, how you deeply love us. And I know. Uh, due to us all uh, struggling uh, in this area to some form or another, to some degree or another, there is shame that comes up in this, and would you meet it uh, with the power uh, of the gospel. We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to read first uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, and then uh, just a little bit in 1 Corinthians 6. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools and heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Okay, and then um, 1 Corinthians, flip over there, chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised uh, the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is, uh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That is where we'll stop. The grass withers, flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Okay, if you're an outline person, really the beauty of sex, really quickly, and then the power of it, and then the purpose of it. Mainly at the purpose. But the beauty of the sex, uh, I think if you take the biblical view of sex, you will realize it has the highest view of sex of, of anything. Right? Every other kind of view of sex views it um, as some kind of thing that revolves around me. Right? Uh, kind of in the olden days and still today, it was viewed as like an appetite. We actually kind of talked about that last week. Um, that food is just... It, Right, when I'm hungry, I eat. And so the same thing is desire for sex. When I desire sex, you just kind of have it. And then there's kind of another view that sex is actually kind of dirty. It's prudish. It's not something to be talked about. That actually kind of pervaded the church uh, for a while in some of church history. But kind of, I, I think the modern view where we are is that sex is just a form of expression. Like, that's where you express who you really are. And if that's... If that for you means you want to keep it in marriage and raise a family, then so be it. But if the way that you're fulfilled, you know, is, is, is sleeping around or pornography or whatever it is, it is, it's just about you and your expression. And the Bible, I, I, it just has an amazingly high view of sex. Because it says all those other views, any other view but the biblical view of sex actually belittles it. It actually kind of dehumanizes it because it just makes it about you. And sex, by definition, is supposed to involve another person. And it is, it is loving. And because it's loving, it has to be selfless. And the Bible says that sex is something to be celebrated. That it's actually God's creation. And whatever God creates and whatever God calls good, it just is good. We don't get to call, any, call it anything else. And it's enjoyable. And so, right... The Bible has one book, right? There's a whole book devoted to marital love and sex. There's no other topic in, in your whole Bible that gets one book devoted to it, right? There's not a book on, like, decision-making. There's not a book on, um, uh, on how to have a quiet time, right? All these things that we say are good and, and those are and deeply important. But the Bible has such a high view of sex that it has a whole book on it. Like you, you just got to kind of interact with that. And so the Bible says sex is something that is created by a good and perfect God, but it's only created for the context of marriage between man and woman. And that's it. Uh, and that just kind of needs to, it needs to put some of you at ease. Because if you grew up kind of in a certain background, we start thinking that having sexual desires is wrong or something to squelch or something to feel guilty about. And I just want to free you from that guilt. Like, the Bible says sex is good, and sexual desire is good, and it's a part of his good creation. Uh, and it never just says it's just a part of your physical appetite. So, comprehensively beautiful idea of sex. It is incredibly positive. But here's the deal. Sex is also very powerful. 
right? We, we didn't read that. Uh, there's a refrain that happens four times in the book of Song, Song of Solomon where it says, do not awaken love before time. And what that, the plea is saying this, don't stir it up. Don't stir it up until you are ready to embrace its power. Because sex is incredibly good, it's also incredibly powerful. In some ways, alcohol is probably a good analogy, right? Uh, alcohol is a good creation, but it's also incredibly powerful. And when used in the wrong way, it'll do great damage. Sex is the same thing. Um, you've got, and this analogy kind of sounds weird. I think it works. You got to think of sex as nuclear power. Right, nuclear power, there's nothing wrong with it. It can do tremendous good if, um, if you used according to its design. It can, it can power cities, it can do all kinds of things, but you use it um, out of the confines it was created to, it can, it can do tremendous harm. Uh, it can do tremendous damage. And so sex in the Bible is saying it's incredibly good, but because it has such great power, you've got to treat it with respect. To not treat it with respect is to be foolish about sex. Um, and this should, I, I think, start making sense of the power that's going on in your kind of dating relationships. Um, right? You make promises to each other that you'll never cross that line again. You make promises that, um, that I'm going to have accountability groups and that's going to stop it. And then you realize it's just, it's just more powerful than that. You just can't control it that easily. Because when you awaken it before it's time, uh, it takes control of you. I, yeah, we talked about that last week. But, but no, yeah, no married couple makes out for an hour and stops. I promise, because it has power and it leads somewhere, and you're having to exert incredible power for it not to lead somewhere. We right, we want to think sex is an elevator, so you can get on. And you can get off at floor five, and you're fine. And it just stops. Sex is much more like an escalator. And so when you get on, and you try to sit in the making out stage, you're trying to run backwards on an escalator, and, it take, and it'll wear you out and exhaust you. And it actually takes incredible effort to get down, back down to the bottom. It's that powerful. Um, and so the idea of casual sex, even that phrase, is just an oxymoron. It's impossible. Because if you're right, if you're a hunter, and I'm not a hunter, but the, the people that you most fear hunting with is not necessarily somebody that hasn't hunted before, I don't think, talking to y'all. It's somebody that has an attitude that's casual about guns, and they don't care. Because you start realizing when someone is casual about something of great power, uh, it's a dangerous thing to be around. So sex is beautiful. It's also incredibly powerful. Powerful in a, in a life-giving way, if used in the context of marriage. Outside the context of marriage, it does incredible damage. And uh, so, what's the, uh, what's the purposes? Um, when God created sex, right, he didn't consult us about the purpose of it. Uh, he didn't say, hey, what do you think this should be used for? How can we use that? And that kind of makes us mad because we, we think we have our own purposes but God knew what he was doing, and he actually designed sex for a purpose. And when used according to that purpose, it's incredibly beautiful, and it's incredibly good. But take it and manipulate it for your own purposes, and it always leads uh, to damage. It doesn't mean it's not fun, right? Because God created it for pleasure. Of course it's fun. Of course, right? Some people try to, try to kind of 
beat away sexual sin by acting like it's not fun. Well, no, it's incredibly powerful, and it's, concre- it's created for pleasure. It's going to be fun, but it's going to do damage. Um, so uh, the first thing that God created it for is sex is like glue. Um, right, in, in, uh, in Song of Solomon, verse 10, after, right, this is, a, this is a racy chapter in your Bible, after the husband undresses her, what she ends up saying is, I'm my beloved's and his desires for me. And what she realizes, sex actually did something. It really united them. It really communicated something and it binded them together. So much so that after that, she feels connected. She feels like she's his. It's the same thing that uh, Paul points to in 1 Corinthians 6. Right, this is an amazing verse. It says, Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. See, Paul is saying that even when a guy goes and sleeps with a prostitute, though his intention was solely about pleasure, he says, you became one flesh with her. Even though that wasn't your intention. And even though that wasn't your purpose. Paul's making an incredible statement. He says sex communicates and binds you to another person whether that's what you intended or not. Because that's its purpose. And so sex unites you and makes you one flesh. Every sex act, and that doesn't just mean intercourse, it is a uniting act. It's just how God created it. And Paul says what happens is you end up bonding physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, with that prostitute, even though you didn't mean to, so much so that you're now one flesh. And so I, I think sex is glue, right? That's why you've got to think of sex in some ways like super glue. I hate using super glue. I hate using it because, right, when I get it on my fingers or I get it on something that I didn't intend for it uh, to get on, it still achieves its purpose, right? And it still binds my fingers to paper or worse, to another finger. And then it, then it creates real pain when you, when you pull it off. But here's what's interesting. I have no idea how superglue works. I, I could not explain the chemistry behind it. And, and I didn't intend for it to make my fingers stick together, and it does that. But my knowledge of how superglue works, nor my intents for it, does not dictate what it actually does. That's exactly how sex works. Your knowledge of how it unites and makes you one flesh, nor your your intentions for it, matter. It just does, because it's just its purpose. And he just God designed sex. This is what makes it amazing in such a way that it promises lifelong commitment. It says, "I'm here, and I'll be here tomorrow, and the next day, and the next. All of me is yours today and tomorrow." Um, And so it is commitment. And that's why when you're not married, when there's not vows that have said, I I am yours till death do us part, sex communicates that, that I'm committed to you, that I'm all in, but you know it's a lie. And so it really hurts. If you've ever seen Vanilla Sky, I can't can't recommend Vanilla Sky. Um, It's pretty good. Um... Right, Tom Cruise is kind of, does he ever play anything but a hotshot playboy? He is your kind of hotshot, 
playboy that's kind of running around and very promiscuous. He ends up sleeping with one of his friends, Cameron Diaz, and then he decides he's done with that. And they have this very intense conversation after kind of weeks of, you know, of casual sex. And she looks at him and she says, look, when you sleep with somebody, your body makes promises whether you wanted it to or not. And she nailed it. She said, you treated this as casual, but I now realize that you were kept promising something. And you can't just walk away from that. And so sex unites. It's more than just biology. It's saying, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. That's one of the reasons it's so good in marriage. But second of all, sex is disclosure. Right? Song of Solomon 7. The chapter is amazing. If you only read Song of Solomon 7, what you think, and this is what you falsely think, is that this woman is like the pinnacle of beauty, right? That she is the perfection of whatever you picture as the standard of beauty and that she is completely at ease with how she looks. But she's not. If you go read Song of Solomon 1, it's very interesting. What she says about herself, she's actually ashamed of the way that she looks. She says she's too dark, right? right back in those days, uh, tan was not a sign of beauty, it was actually, a, it was bad, because it was a sign that you'd worked in the fields and you were poor. And she even talks about how her brothers have treated her. You think, I think there's even something referencing maybe to abuse. She is, she is not at ease with how she looks on the outside. She even says, don't look at me. But look at this, this is what's awesome. Though she's ashamed of her body, here in chapter 7, her husband moves towards her, right? And... Hopefully this won't be too graphic. But this is what happens. She has unveiled herself to her husband, completely naked, completely vulnerable. It's scary. And then her husband goes to the areas that she is most self-conscious about, where she's most modest, and he praises her there. And he sings over her there. Right? He praises her breasts. He praises her eyes, her stomach. And it's amazing. Because sex is saying this. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to show you myself. Really physically, emotionally, spiritually. I'm going to let you see all of me. And what sex in the, in, in the context of marriage says, yes. And I love you for you. I've seen all of you. And instead of running away, I move towards you. And it, so it enhances trust, and it enhances commitment. And you feel the love of someone who really cherishes you for you, even the things you're ashamed about. And so what God has done is He's given sex to communicate to you so you can feel it, that what is true of you at that moment is that you are the most cherished person in your husband or your wife's eyes. And that's true, and you feel it. That, I think, is why... Right, the Hebrew word that's used to describe sex in the Old Testament is no, right? When it says Adam knew Eve, it means they, they had sex. He knew her, right? He knew her completely. And so God, God gives you a gift that in the context of marriage you feel what is true of you, that you're cherished and loved. And again, this goes back to why all sex, act, sex acts outside of marriage don't work. Because what you're saying is, I will be naked with you physically. 
but I will not be naked with you financially, emotionally, and spiritually. I'm going to hide those things. I'm not going to give those things to you. And that's why sexual sin leaves so much shame. Because you've opened yourself up. You've let somebody in, and they see you, and they might walk away. And it confirms all the worst fears that we have. That when somebody really sees me, instead of moving towards me, they'll eventually reject me. And that's why it leaves such shame. And you know how empty it feels that when you, when you let somebody in, when you let them see you, which the pinnacle of that is sex, and you feel, I just gave that person to me. Uh, I, just, I, just, I, just, I gave myself to her. Without the confines of marriage, you realize there's zero security. There's zero security. That person could just walk away. And you feel that. And that's the reality. And so it's also a disclosure. Marriage gives you the context and commitment to do that. Third, sex is pleasure, real quick. Song of Solomon 7. Look, there's, there's immense enjoyment and pleasure all over Song of Solomon. Um, and it's great. But what's completely different about the pleasure in Song of Solomon 7 and the way that most sex is viewed in our culture is that each person in this book is consumed with the other person's pleasure, not their own. Right? That's what they're doing. God created sex as a mechanism for serving the other person, not serving your own fulfillment and needs. It's for giving pleasure, not getting pleasure. Of course, because love is always selfless. Uh, Tim Keller says, only when you use sex for the other person rather than for your own personal satisfaction will it actually give fulfillment. Um, and so, and so the Bible says, of course it's fun. God created it to be pleasure, pleasurable and to enhance it, but in giving yourself to the other person and being concerned with him. Um, it's actually to be enjoyed and not something to be scared of, right? Uh, hopefully this isn't crass, right? When God created sex, he didn't like, he didn't mess up. He didn't end up with a bunch of extra nerve endings and think, I don't know what to do with this. I guess I'll just like throw them down there. No, like he did that for a purpose because it was the way that married people serve each other and enhance pleasure. And so God, God created it to be a place of joy and pleasure and to feel the pleasure of being loved and, be, and, and, and being married. And then fourthly, sex is actually renewal. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, which we didn't read. Um, but if you read Song of Solomon... It kind of seems like they're having sex all the time. And it's kind of like, yeah. Because God designed sex to enhance and deepen the commitment that is there because of marriage. Right? In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, he actually, right, husbands, uh, men love this command, right? Paul commands husbands and wives to only abstain from sex for a limited time so you can pray. Why else would he command that unless it's something that is that is deeply central to the marriage, that's actually doing something. And God has given a tool to marriage that, that reminds you of the truth of who you are and deepens that and enhances it because you forget. In marriage, after a year or two years, what you start thinking is that, that life is supposed to revolve around my kids or, or, or what or life revolves around how good I'm doing in your job. or All these things start begging to be your primary commitment. But then you enter the bedroom, and what's true of you becomes a reality again. 
that my primary commitment is your spouse. And it renews that and it deepens that commitment. And it rekindles it. And you, there's a sense that you're recommitting yourself to your spouse every time. And that, it's beautiful. Um, and so that's why sex becomes a place of healing. Because everything, if you think about it, everything that, the, that you hate about the world, sex reverses it. This is what's awesome about it. We are built and need to be alone with someone so they can totally and completely see us and love us. And the world does the opposite. This is what we hate, right? We feel vulnerable in the world. We feel like if somebody, right, we all run these PR campaigns to manage what you think of me so that you'll like me because we don't want to feel vulnerable in the world. But in the marriage bed, you finally feel safe because somebody sees you and moves towards you. We feel ugly in the world. We just do. And in the marriage bed, you finally feel beautiful. We feel unwanted in the world, rejected. But in the marriage bed, you finally feel cherished and desired. And it, it just belittles what the world says about you. Sex is wonderful because it's a place where you're known and where you're loved. And it keeps communication. So those are the kind of four purposes. And then fifthly, the primary one, and this is kind of where we're going to end Sex is actually a foretaste. This is by far the best part. And I, I'm going to admit, I didn't unpack this completely until I actually started studying it. And if the Bible didn't say this, I would never say it. Um, but this is unbelievable. Like, you, all right, here's the danger. You spend a whole night unpacking just the robust, grand view of sex that the Bible has. And the danger is that you leave tonight thinking that sex is the end-all, be-all. And it's, that's the ultimate, but it's not. On the one hand, sex really is better than you thought. Because in marriage, it improves with time, and it, you become vulnerable with, with the person. As you grow in, a, in, in love with the person, you realize sex is more than just about getting needs met. It's about loving a person. And it really is better. Like it's holistic loving someone, and there's a thrill of a commitment. But on the other hand, in marriage, you realize sex is not as a big of a deal as you thought. You got you to hear me right on this. In marriage, you realize sex is awesome, but it will not save you. And it won't save your marriage. And it won't fix your problems. And it won't make them magically go away. Because it was never designed to do that. And when you think sex will do that, it'll make you bitter and angry. It'll make you mad at your spouse. Because sex never was designed to be able to hold the weight of all your hope and expectations for fulfillment in life. It can't do it. Why? Here's the best part. Because God designed sex to be a foretaste. Right? To be a shadow. This, is, this sounds crazy. God designed sex to be a shadow of the rapturous love that he has for you, his church. That's what Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says. If you go read it, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Right? He's quoting Genesis 2. And then he says, this, is a, this mystery is profound. When he says this mystery is profound, we think he's about to go talk again about marriage. But he says, I'm, I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. That's crazy. Paul just said the two will become one flesh, and that is a mystery, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
Which means, and I don't completely understand this, right? Paul said it's a mystery, so I won't say I understand it. (laughs) But God created sex, the pleasures and the joys of it, and the bonding it does, to be a foretaste of Jesus' love for you, his church. It's that unbelievable. Does that... Okay, we'll just be gross. Does that mean that like... It doesn't mean that Jesus wants to have sex with you. No, like don't be ridiculous. But it does mean this, that everything that happens in Song of Solomon, everything about that thrill, it's just a foretaste, a glimmer of the love and enjoyment of Jesus' love for you. That's really what it means. Right, why... Okay, why do we not do sacrifices anymore? Right, we don't do we don't sacrifice lambs anymore because in the Old Testament, those were shadows, pointers to Jesus' first coming, and so he because he died on the cross to do a sacrifice would now belittle what Jesus did. Right, the the real thing has come. Why do we still do marriage and sex? Because those things are shadows and pointers to Jesus' second coming, and when he comes again. And we all experience the great marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be no more sex and no more marriage. Because those were just designed to be a foretaste of that. And so I just dare to think with me. Like dare to think. This is amazing. Jesus wants to be your passionate lover. He really does. He wants you to be intoxicated with His love. That's how good He is. And if that makes you uncomfortable, if it makes you uncomfortable to that Jesus wants you to be enamored with his love, that he's passionate about you, and that the Song of Solomon, the remaining a true story, is just a mere illustration of how the Lord of this universe feels about you. If you're uncomfortable with that, you just need to admit that that means you think Song of Solomon is a better husband than Jesus. And that's impossible. He is the lover of your soul in all its thrills. So think about Think about everything that sex points to, right? It's commitment. It's glue. You want commitment? Jesus says, what it means that I love you is that you're united to Christ. That he wants to be one with you. There's nothing like that. Jesus says, in Christ, nothing can shake my love for for you. Not even your sin. You cannot make me love you any less. Right, one of the great things about sex is like you, you kind of have to get rid of the things that are between you before you go to the marriage bed because it's communicating what you're one. If you don't feel like you're one, you've got to kind of deal with that. And don't miss this. Jesus is so committed to you, so wants to be one, that the thing that's between, between you and Jesus is your sin. And so he does whatever it takes to get rid of that. And he becomes sin and becomes shame on a cross 2,000 years ago. He takes it away. So that he can be utterly committed to you. And he never makes an empty promise. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come, I'll give you rest. I will give you myself. And so it's commitment. You want oneness, right? Sex communicates oneness. Jesus says, I will withhold nothing. If you come to me, all that is mine is yours. And all that is yours is mine. We bring sin, we bring shame. Jesus takes it. Jesus brings righteousness and love and mercy and forgiveness, and we take it. It is utter oneness. So much so that salvation is called in Christ, according to Paul. It also means he knows you. 
Right? Remember Song of Solomon. The husband went to the places that were most private, the things that she was most ashamed of, and actually praises her there and loves her there. He went to the darkest, most shameful parts of her life and loved her there. Man, this is the good news. Some of you don't know the thrill of Jesus' love, probably, because you've actually never revealed yourself to him. You have never let, you've never talked to him and let him see the things that you're most ashamed about. And Jesus is saying, I know. I know you better than you know yourself. I know how you feel about those things that nobody else uh, knows about. And open your shame to him. Like, talk to him about it. Tell him the things you've done. Tell him about your shame. And let him love you. Like, let him sing praises over you. Let him delight in you and tell you that his love for you is no less. He is a better lover than Solomon, I promise. Right there, um, true story, there was, um, uh, there was this uh, girl who um, uh, ended up having a double mastectomy, uh, right, because of her cancer. And one of the things that's so, so hard about that, right, is uh, for females, you lose something that is just very close to her, right? That, there's a sense that you kind of lose your femininity. And for a long time, she was really struggling with that. Like, she was just ashamed of it. And there's no amount of encouragement that could change her about that. And she'd, seen count, she'd been to counseling. And finally, finally, the husband took her into the bedroom. And, and, and he disrobed her. And what he did is he just went and he just kissed her scars. And that's it. He went to the place that she was most humiliated about, most ashamed of, and kissed the scars. And it began to heal her. And Jesus says, unveil yourself to me. Let me come to me with the stuff that you're most ashamed about, and he will kiss the scars. He goes to like go to him. Tell him about the wreckage in your life. You can go to him and say, I am the person I thought that I would never be. And he, he will receive you. And he'll give you his righteousness. You can say you're disappointed with where you are. You can say you're disappointed in the fact that you haven't become all that you thought that you were. And you can say you're disappointed uh, that, that it seems like you, you've created wreckage in your life. But let him love you. Like let him heal you with that stuff. And let him take your shame and give you his perfect righteousness. Why? Because he's not a rule. And he's not a system. He's an actual person. That's the lover of your soul. And you can't be distant from a person. You can't withhold things from a person and still experience intimacy. You've got to bring the real you and let Jesus love you there. He's better than you think. And then lastly, he takes real pleasure in you, right? Sex is made for pleasure, but it's just a pointer. And Jesus takes real pleasure in you. We don't believe that. We think Jesus just tolerates us. He actually enjoys you and loves that you're his bride. It's called grace. Why does Jesus call us to constantly confess our sin, though all of our sin has been paid for? Because he wants you to re-experience the thrill of his love every minute, every hour, every day, that he really loves you by sheer grace. Right? His love for you is not growing when you confess your sin, but your experience of His love is actually increasing because you're realizing 
I'm a mess. I still am. And Jesus keeps moving towards me. And so Jesus takes real pleasure. And most of us, I think, say, I don't even know what to do with that. But it's just a foretaste. And so, yeah, I, I'll just kind of end by imagining, again, the goodness of sex. Just imagine. Imagine the security of being completely known for who you are and all its shame and yet being completely secure because of commitment and pleasure and nothing that you can shake. And that's the offer of Jesus. And that's how sex points to Jesus. And you can, re- you can receive the free love of Jesus because it cost him everything. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for uh, your mercy. Thank you, uh, thank you for the gift of sex. Lord, it is, um, it is uh, sometimes foreign for us to think that you take real pleasure in this. Um, uh, because so often, Lord, we have been hurt by other people. We've been burned uh, by people when, uh, when they've seen us at, at our worst. And so often, Lord, we project those kind of things on you. Uh, but, Lord, thank you for grace. Uh, thank you that you created sex just to be a foretaste uh, to you, and it's a great mystery. But Lord, would you enable us to do what we can't do for ourselves and open ourselves to your love and receive uh, you as the passionate lover of our soul and let that heal us of our scars. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Glad y'all came.